incredible. And uh, he really blazed the, the trail through Africa and shared the gospel and really um, opened up doors for missionaries to Africa, uh, really for centuries to come. And uh, you can hear the burden on his heart when we sing those uh, words or we hear those tunes played. Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Thank you, Nate, for uh, that blessing tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 is where our scripture reading was at. And we'll go back there and uh, we will be also looking at some other passages of scripture as we have the second part on, on the rapture of the church as we are looking at hope in prophecy. Prophecy gives us great hope for the future. And I won't go back and review everything that we have uh, looked at over the last couple of weeks, but uh, I do want to bring up this chart once again. Am I turned off? I am. There we go. Thank you, Drew. All right. I know I'm in trouble when I see the sound man waving his hands in the back. And he's not saying incomplete pass. He's saying there's something that's not turned, turned on up here. So uh, thank you for that reminder, Drew. Appreciate that. All right. So Daniel's 70th week, this is the seven years of the tribulation. And I believe in our church has a conviction. And in our statement of faith, our doctrinal statement, we hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture and a pre-millennial view of the coming of Jesus Christ to establish a literal 1,000-year millennial reign. And so you'll see there, again, on that chart, the rapture of the church and the arrow uh, pointing to that beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, which we know as the tribulation. <clears throat> the first three and a half years um, sometimes are just referred to as the tribulation in general. The second three and a half years, the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. But I believe that the scripture teaches a pre-tribulational uh, rapture of the church. And we've been looking at, as we did last week, some of the reasons for that. Again, for a little bit of review, uh, we understand that the word rapture is not in the Bible. And it is a word that we have used in our English language to describe this catching up of believers into the sky to be with Jesus Christ at his glorious appearing. So the Greek word is harpazo, and that is found in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. And so I'm going to be caught up together, excuse me, caught up together with him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Caught up is that phrase that is the, the, in the word in the original language, harpazo, and we looked at this last week, and I'm going to have to go through this very quickly to get back to um, our reasons uh, for this. Let me back up here. I went too far. There we go. I need to back up here. Sorry, I got out of, got out of order there. There we go. So this Greek word, Harpazo is translated in the King James, caught up. We use the word rapture, which refers to this seizing, taking, conveying of one person or a person or a group of people from one place to another. So we use the rapture 
to describe the catching up, that is the original word harpazo in the Greek language. So this is the conveying of us as believers, those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ. We are caught up together with him. We are conveyed from one place here on this earth or under the earth to the glories of heaven. And so that is where uh, we get that word rapture from. We talked about that last week. So reasons for the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. And I don't want to uh, spend too much time in review because we do have the Lord's table tonight and I don't want to keep us here uh, too late. But we looked at last week the, the fact that there is a judgmental nature of the tribulation. I won't go back and review the picture from the Old Testament, Rosh Hashanah, Feast of the Trumpets. I won't go back and review all that again. But our first reason for the pre-tribulational view of the rapture is the judgmental nature of the tribulation. We see in the description of the tribulation, we see a time of great wrath. Revelation 6 through 19 describe everything from the seal and the trumpet, the, the bowl or vile judgments being poured out. And there are commentators who uh, debate where the, the different judgments are poured out on the earth and whether the seal judgments all happen in the first three and a half years, and then the uh, trumpet and bowl judgments happen in the second uh, half. We do know that there is a great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble after the desecration of the temple, the breaking of the covenant. So there are massive judgments in the second half of the tribulation. But I do believe that those seal judgments, at least the seal judgments, take place in the first three and a half years. And there are descriptions of horrific judgments, natural catastrophes, as well as supernatural acts of God, where God brings judgment on the earth in a way that we've not seen, other than the closest thing to it would be the, the flood that God saved Noah out of and Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire and brimstone came down and destroyed those cities. So we see in Revelation 3 and verse 10 that the church is saved from the hour of temptation. And then I just made reference to Noah and Lot. And I believe these are examples of what God will do with the church at the rapture. As he took Noah out of the flood, as he took Lot, even a man who had vexed his righteous soul with the things of Sodom and Gomorrah, yet God had grace and mercy and rescued him from a time of cataclysmic judgment, of great catastrophe. And so I see in the pre-tribulational view of the rapture, God taking the church before God pours out in a cataclysmic way a judgment on the earth similar to how he rescued Noah and Lot from times of great judgment. So we see the judgmental nature of the tribulation is one reason, I think a very good reason for a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. But also in Daniel 9 and verse 24 we see that the 70 weeks of Daniel specifically are for Israel. Now the church obviously has in a sense a uh, outside Look, looking in, in a, 
real sense, they are, as the church is in the age of grace, the church age, that time between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week, as we looked at on the chart, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they often saw the mountain peaks of the first coming of Christ, the Messiah, and the second coming, the millennial kingdom, as another mountain peak. And they often did not see, God did not reveal to them. Ephesians talks about the mystery of the church, and that being a previously unrevealed truth, not full in their understanding as Old Testament prophets of the church age, but there are specific promises made to Israel, and Daniel's 70th week specifically uh, deal with Israel, though, of course, uh, the church and the church age is found there between the 69th and 70th weeks. A third reason is the words and phrases that are used to describe the rapture of the church. The blessed hope in Titus 2 and verse 13. In John 14 in verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again. And he talks about receiving us unto himself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I think that's a powerful statement that makes reference to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And we'll get to the Jewish wedding and how the pre-tribulational view best fits with the Jewish wedding, which would have been very familiar to them. And in John 14, the people there would have been very familiar with the Jewish wedding customs. And so we see that picture of uh, the bride of Christ and how a Jewish wedding was, uh, how, how, how that took place. And uh, we'll see the similarities, the comparisons, and how, again, that best fits the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. But they're, they're receiving, Christ receiving us to himself. He is in heaven. He appears in that glorious appearing, and then he receives us unto himself, that where I am, where he is, we shall be also. And then we go to where there are many mansions, and that word mansion in the original language simply means a dwelling place, a room, okay? And I know we think of mansions as these huge, beautiful houses. Some of them are multi-million dollar homes that these celebrities and superstars live in. We were shocked taking a little road tour around Lafayette. I like to do this once in a while. I like to just take back roads and find different routes. So one day we were on 26 over here and we decided, I just like to do this kind of thing. And I decided, well, let's see if we can get to the church by going by the Lee's house and then cutting back on some country roads. Let's see where we end up. Maybe we can eventually get back, you know, turn off the GPS uh, until you absolutely have to turn it on. And we're driving back there on some country roads. And I, I guess there's a famous rock and roll uh, singer whose mom or dad or something lives lives back in there. Um, I forget the, the rock band, but I guess somebody's uh, mom or dad has a home back in that area. And then you go a little bit further back, and all of a sudden, we thought it was a hotel. We're like, what is a hotel doing in this neighborhood off of a country road in Lafayette? And so we drove back there, and we drove up as far as we could there along the, on the driveway. We didn't go in the driveway, and look, but we stood there or sat there in our car, and we were just, wow. And so Josiah, being Mr. GPS, he, he, he goes home, 
and uh, he pulls up Google Earth and he's zeroing in and he's like, dad, that's a 40,000 square foot house. And he starts naming off the number of bedrooms and number of uh, bathrooms. And I don't remember if it has a swimming pool or a bowling alley or I don't remember what all was in it. Uh, but I guess somebody, one of the executives from Subaru uh, owns that house or, or something like that. But that's what we often think of, right? I am going to have this big mansion and how, how I live on this earth determines the size of our mansion. No, that's what we sometimes think. If I really live a good Christian life, then I'm going to get the multi-million dollar mansion next to the celestial sea as close to the throne of Jesus as I can get. And I'll really show everybody how good of a Christian I was. We got it all wrong if that's what we're thinking. That mansion is a dwelling place, a room as part of the Father's house. And it speaks to the presence of God that we will be dwelling in and that God will tabernacle with men, and our praise will be to him for all eternity. And I, again, I, I believe those uh, speak to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. He will receive us to himself in the rapture. And then caught up again, Harpazo, 1 Thessalonians 4, and verse 17. So we see another reason, uh, reason number four, letter D, the timing of the events after the rapture. I forgot to fix the, the typo there. That's going to bug me. Sorry about that. The judgment seat of Christ. There has to be time for the judgment seat of Christ. Millions of believers from all time who have to go through the accounting, who have to stand before Christ and give an account and receive their rewards or the lack thereof. And this is a testing and accounting for our faithfulness, for our stewardship, not a judgment for our sin. Again, I don't believe there's going to be a big movie screen in the sky and on day number 552, our name gets called, and we have to go, and everybody gets to watch the life of whatever, whoever. I don't think it's going to be like that. I do believe that there is going to be a, as we know, every man must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I do believe there is going to be a reckoning in some way, shape, or form. It, 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 it's not necessarily a written test. It's not necessarily an SAT or an ACT or, or something like that, but there is going to be gold, silver, or precious stones or wood, hay, or stubble that we have laid up in heaven. And what a shame it will be if we have only wood, hay, and stubble, we're saved, but we have nothing in a sense to give back to the Lord in praise and adoration. The degree of our worship is going to be affected by our good works after our salvation. Our faithfulness and our stewardship will be somehow, some way tied to the degree of our worship and our enjoyment of heaven. Everybody gets heaven who's genuinely born again, but there is a judgment according to our works. The way we live now as believers does matter for all eternity. And I don't want to get too carried away here. I've already I brought a message about rewards, but there is a level of or degree of our worship and our enjoyment of heaven that's tied to our faithfulness, our stewardship, our good works after uh, we are saved. So there has to be time for that and for the marriage supper of the Lamb. There has to be time for us to have a time of sweet fellowship where there is no sin affecting or inhibiting our relationships. I joked around last week about how I hope that God puts us next to somebody that 
we struggled with in our relationships here on earth. I can just see God doing that. But in, 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 in one sense, that really doesn't matter. I joke around about that. It, we're all going to be without sin. There's no longer going to be the flesh. And what a joy that will be. And we shall be known even as we are known. So as we're mingling in the marriage supper of the Lamb, I can only imagine what it is like to meet David and to meet various saints from the past. Obviously, we want to see our Savior first of all in the judgment seat of Christ. We receive our rewards. We give our praise and adoration to Him. But there's going to be a sweet fellowship far greater than the cookie and pie fellowship. As much as we're looking forward to that, and I know I am, and that pumpkin pie and the chocolate chip and peanut butter cookies, whatever is brought. I'm looking forward to that. And a good cup of coffee afterward. That's wonderful. And the fellowship and the chance to, to chat and talk with everybody, that's wonderful. And I love how this church loves to fellowship. And sometimes we're here an hour, hour and a half after the service. And uh, we're not just in a big hurry to go watch Sunday night football. And uh, I love the fact that we can uh, enjoy our, our, our company, each other's company. It's a, it's a real blessing. But can you imagine the marriage supper of the Lamb? There's no sin, no jealousy, no envy, nobody looking to see who can dominate who, who can be the power broker. None of that. We're all in sweet fellowship. We're meeting saints like Abraham, and we're talking to uh, Jonah. What was it like in the, the belly of that, that fish? And why would you do something like that? You know, I mean, all the things that we can just imagine that we would be talking about and asking questions of, and then, our, and then there's our, our loved ones who have gone before us. And what a joy that will be to shake their hand and give them a hug and to spend eternity with them and enjoy that marriage supper of the Lamb. What a, what a wonderful joy that will be. And there has to be time for that. And I believe the pre-tribulational rapture of the church gives the most time for something as wonderful as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Letter E, and then we see the work of the restrainer. Now, I'll have to dwell a little bit here. It's been a little bit of time here. I have you in 1 Corinthians 15, and I, I, I have to have us turn back. Um, actually turn ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And let's go to this for a few minutes here. And I don't want to get too carried away because this could actually probably be a sermon all by itself. But 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And we have to understand there's been a lot of debate about who the restrainer is or what the restrainer is. But we understand from reading 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 7, that the restrainer is taken out of the way, is literally made to step aside, okay? We have to understand, too, some of the context here that Paul is addressing Thessalonians who are struggling with the day of the Lord. They think that they have missed the rapture of the church, and they are in the 70th week of Daniel, and they are under the judgment of God. That appears to be what Paul is addressing with the Thessalonians. And so that even helps us understand the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, because Paul is correcting them for their believing wrong teachers, false teachers, or people who came in maybe with, sincerity and yet cause these people to have some wrong views about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord being the cataclysmic judgments of God that take place in the 70th week of Daniel. That's the day of the Lord that is coming and the Thessalonians are fearful. They're doubting. They're discouraged. They're worried. We missed the rapture and we're stuck in this time of judgment now. And yes, they are experiencing some measure of persecution. They're seeing some bad things going on in the world. And 
Are we not seeing some bad things going on in the world? Are we not seeing some wickedness and some evil that is extremely prevalent? And here even in America, we're, we're seeing and hearing things that we never thought we would ever see or hear here in the United States. And the Thessalonians are thinking that maybe they missed the rapture and they're a little confused. And Paul is correcting their thinking, which again speaks to the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? It's almost as if uh, a father or a mother is talking to her or his children and saying, Have I not told you this a thousand times? I know I sound just like my dad and mom when I say that. My kids roll their eyes. Have we not said this a thousand times? I speak just like my mom and dad. I can hear their voices because I've heard it said to me. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, have I not told you all this already? Have I not taught you this? And now you know, verse 6, and now you know that withhold, and now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. He who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That's where we get that word restrainer. That's how we describe the restrainer, capital R. Okay? So the mystery of iniquity, we understand that there is a spirit of lawlessness, a spirit of the Antichrist that is in the world. Verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, that seems to be a reference to a person, the Antichrist, the wicked, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceive, deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, 11 and verses 11 and 12 enter another area of debate, but... I want us to see that there is a spirit of lawlessness. There is a, and I'm going to have to go back, verse 7, mystery of iniquity. And then we see uh, the wicked in verse number 8. And the description is, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That seems to be, and I think it's pretty clear, that's the Antichrist who is doing the work of Satan. This is a person. Your Bible might even have capital W for wicked. In the original language, wicked one. So this is a wicked one like the world has never seen. Again, the pre-fulfillment of this prophecy is in Daniel, in his description of Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes as a Persian king and persecutes Israel and desecrates the temple. I believe he offered a pig on the altar. And he's the pre-fulfillment. He is the picture, the type of the Antichrist who is described in these words. He's a diabolical, despicable evil like the world has never seen before. But before he can operate, there has to be this removal or setting aside of the restrainer, okay? And that goes back to verse number, and I lost my place there, and I believe it is, he that 
Verse 7, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Good men disagree. Good women disagree. Okay, and this is a area for study and debate. I remember sitting in a Bible class my freshman year, and I know how I had been taught, and there was a preacher boy in this class who decided to take on Dr. Wisdom. And I know this man to this day, he's serving the Lord, he's a good man, but I thought he was a little obnoxious and arrogant because he raised his hand, and he, did, he decided he was going to teach Dr. Wisdom. And he got into an argument with Dr. Wisdom, and I struggled with that guy the rest of my time in Bible college because he also busted me for having a little bit of hair on my ear, and I had to go to the dean of men's office. But anyway, I, he's, he's, he's been here. He's been here. He's a good man. I've shaken his hand. We get along well, and we've both grown up in a lot of ways. But he, he, he took on Dr. Wisdom that day, and they got into, and Dr. Wisdom was so patient and so gracious. If you've ever met Dr. Wisdom, he's one of the most patient and gracious men you could ever imagine. And this young preacher boy decides he's going to take on Dr. Wisdom, and he's going to show Dr. Wisdom that he's wrong. And it was about this passage. And I thought, this is not the place. We're here to learn. We're freshmen. But the restrainer, we can argue all day long that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer in the capital R sense of the word. The point is that there is a setting, a stepping aside of the full work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still going to be at work in the tribulation. People are still going to get saved. But it's almost as if the Holy Spirit's ministry kind of goes back to the way it was in the Old Testament. Not exactly, there are still going to be people who get saved and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit during the tribulation. But why is there a stepping aside of the fullness of the Holy Spirit's ministry? That seems to indicate the church is gone. So now there has to be the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and then eventually the two prophets. There is a measure of grace and mercy of salt and light that is influencing this world Obviously, as indwelled believers by the Holy Spirit, when that is removed at the rapture, think about what the world's going to do. There's no more of those radical, conservative, moral, homophobic, bigoted, all the words that we hear, right? We're all going to be gone. We're going to be with our Savior. That's going to unleash a spirit of Antichrist in the Antichrist himself. And I can I say satanically inspired, demon-possessed even. Okay, I can't be overly dogmatic, but it appears he's demon-possessed. And there's not going to be the restraint of the church. It's going to be pretty much, can I, without, please, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it's kind of going to be a measure of hell on earth, okay? I don't mean that phrase in the wrong way. That restraint stepped aside, church and the salt and light influence, even as weak and as unsavory sometimes as the church can be, there's not going to be the influence of the church, and it's going to be brutal. In addition to the judgments that God brings supernaturally upon the earth. I know that opens up questions and people like to debate that. I'm going to leave it at that for sake of time, but I believe that is another very powerful 
reason for the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. And then letter F, the absence of the word church in Revelation 4 through 22. I think that that indicates that the church is not active in its New Testament function because we are with Christ. Judgment seat, marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 4 through 22, the word church is conspicuously absent. And then I've mentioned this already, the work of the 144,000 witnesses. That's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. That is not the cult, okay? These are uh, people who have been chosen by God out of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are uh, the witnesses. And eventually we see also the two prophets who we've talked about. The identification of the 24 elders in heaven, which very clearly uh, seem to be a symbolic representation of the church. The 24 elders, I think, properly properly interpreted is the church. And where is the church? In heaven, at the throne of Christ, worshiping him during the tribulation. That's Revelation 5. And then, without getting too carried away here on time, the Jewish wedding tradition. Now, we have to understand that in the Jewish custom, there would be typically an arranged marriage. Now, how arranged? I, I'm not fully versed on, and Dr. Hartman can, can do such a better job, and he's the one who helped me tremendously with this. He explained it very thoroughly in a workshop that I attended with, with Dr. Hartman many years ago. But there was typically an arranged wedding. We think of Isaac and Rebecca. Abraham sent his servant and the watering of the camels, and all that. And then Isaac and Rebekah uh, got married. Arranged wedding, arranged marriage. That's pretty much an Eastern custom uh, to some degree, even to this day. When I was in Africa, one of my friends, Josiah Wambua, uh, he was in an arranged uh, marriage, or he, he, he was entering into an arranged marriage. And I don't know how he got out of it, but somehow, some way, he, he got out of it, and I was able to meet him a few years ago. Uh, I hadn't seen him in 18 years, and he, he was in the States, and we got to, to meet and talk, and he was married to somebody who he was not arranged to be married to when I left Africa in uh, the year 2000. And uh, as we corresponded through the years, I thought he was going to be marrying this other lady, and I remember him having some questions and he even asked me a little bit, and I, we got out of touch for a while. But somehow he got out of that arranged marriage and ended up marrying this other lady. And uh, they've got, I think, four kids now, uh, something like that. But he's doing a wonderful job there in, uh, in the, uh, the, the Nairobi, uh, Kenya area. But there are still places around the world that have arranged marriages. So the families of the bride and the groom, they, they get together. They, they work out an agreement, and many times there would be a dowry involved, okay? And the, it's sometimes referred to as the bride price, okay? Now, we as Americans, we have the, the honeymoon that the groom is supposed to pay for, right? And if he's really poor, you know, you, you go uh, for a couple days to someplace and maybe spend a night or two, <laughs> or you don't have one at all, uh, or if the groom has saved well, or uh, he's got, you know, enough money he can plan for. I don't know why anybody would want to go down to 
whatever it is, Cancun or whatever the place is that has been having all this crime and some bodies just washed up on the shore at one of these luxuries, luxury resorts. I think it's down in uh, Cancun, but anyway, one of those places. But anyway, the groom pays for the honeymoon, and sometimes it's extravagant, it's elaborate. Well, there would be a bride price that, they, that would be arranged, a dowry that would be arranged, and that would seal the engagement. And remember, Joseph and Mary, their engagement was legally a contract or a covenant, excuse me, a covenant, a legal covenant that could only be broken by divorce. But they weren't married yet. They were in an engagement, and there probably had been a bride price decided on and, or, or a dowry decided on. And then what would happen is, after that was taken care of, then the bride would begin preparing for her wedding, which would be about a year away. The groom would go back to his mom and dad's house and begin building a room in addition onto his father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. There are many rooms. The father's mansion, heaven, adding a room to the father's mansion dwelling place in heaven. So the groom goes back and he's adding on to his father's house. It's going to be their own quarters, but it's going to be adjacent to, attached to his mom and dad's house. So about a year, he's busy building and preparing, and she's back preparing. And we know the parable of the ten virgins and the oil, and we talked about that in one of the uh, early uh, messages uh, after I, I first came here as your pastor. And we went through parables, and we talked about the ten virgins and being ready, okay, and, and all that. But the point is, there would be a time of preparation for the bride. It would typically be about a year, but she didn't know the exact date that he was going to come. So she had to be ready. She knew as that year approached, there would be signs of the time, so to speak. There would be preparation, and she's waiting eagerly for her groom to come. And she needed to be ready, because he could come at any time. And then there would be, when he came, there would be an announcement. There would be a trumpet sound. There would be a voice. And he would come in, and then he would take her as his bride and receive her unto himself. And he would go back to his father's house, and they would have a marriage supper, typically about a week. They didn't go on their honeymoon, but after they consummated the marriage, they would come out and they'd have a party for a week and they would host. So when Jesus in John 2 went with his disciples to the wedding at Cana, that was that marriage supper. That was that we have a wedding reception for a few hours and then everybody goes off on their, the bride and groom go off on their honeymoon. And everybody goes their separate ways. Well, the bride and groom, after they consummated the marriage, they would come out and they would host a celebration, a marriage supper, typically for about a week. And so, again, for the wine to run out in the wedding feast in John 2, that was a huge catastrophe. That was worse than having the wedding cake fall off the table and splatter on the ground. I mean, it'd be probably worse than even that. Um, and you have to call Sam's Club and order another cake and get some generic, you know, cake that they hopefully had. But, again, that's the imagery that we have to keep in mind. That best pictures the rapture. Jesus 
goes, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. We can see the imagery. We can see the timeline. We can see how that Jewish wedding tradition best fits the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Now, we're almost out of time, so I just want to put these final points up as to what will take place at the rapture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God shall sound. And then we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we were for our scripture reading. And we see that in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery, a previously unrevealed truth, or a truth that had not been fully explained to the Old Testament prophets, but now is explained more fully for our understanding. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. And then we read down through there as we did for our scripture reading. The dead in Christ will rise first, resulting in the reuniting of their soul with their now glorified body. The corrupt, corruptible shall put on incorruption. Now you say, well, what about those people who died in a fire or were cremated? or died in drowning in some ship out in the sea. I don't think that's hard for us to explain at all. If God could create the universe, then he could put our bodies back together and put them into their glorified state. That's not hard for God. Our soul is already in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So for him to reunite that dead body, even if it's been mutilated in uh, some sort of uh, crime, or if it's drowned or burned in a fire or cremated, God can put that body back together again. And that glorified body is like the body that Jesus had after the resurrection before he ascended up. Do I know exactly what all that was what's going to look like? I don't know for sure, but they could see the scars on Jesus's body from the crucifixion. Jesus ate with the disciples down by the seashore. So there must be some sort of celestial food that we are able to enjoy. And there is uh, trees in heaven. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be any dogs in heaven or cats in heaven, okay? Um, but there, there's going to be a glorified body, a glorified state where our physical body and our soul are reunited, and it's an incorruptible body. No longer will there be the sinful flesh. Let her see, those that are alive in Christ will join them in the air and be changed into their glorified body. So we see those passages that help us, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. If we had time, we would turn there as well and see our citizenship is in heaven and uh, um, all of that. And I'm, I, I just need to go ahead and turn there because it's such a good passage and I'm going to uh, misquote it. For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body. Our vile body, yeah, it's vile <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, I didn't expect to referee a basketball game Saturday morning, and I'm still paying for it. I mean, I feel like I'm not even 50, and I'm still sore. Uh, how out of shape I am, it's sad. But our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We look forward to that glorious body, that glorified body. And sin is removed, and yes, of course, we'll not have the diseases and the sicknesses, but that, that is what God will do, just like that.
Isn't that amazing? In the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And that brings us to the conclusion of this part of our hope and prophecy. And that brings us hope. That brings us confidence. And uh, to God be the glory for it. All right. We will have our closing hymn, and then we will transition to uh, the Lord's table. And I know we're going a little bit over time tonight, but appreciate your patience as we uh, look to the Lord and observe the Lord's table here in just a moment. Derek will come and lead us now in our closing hymn, our hymn of benediction, of, of closing. 130 beneath the cross of Jesus. We sang this so beautifully just a short time ago. Just stands the number five.